0: So let us run with perseverance, the race that is marked out for us. Because these things are true, let us run with perseverance, the race that is marked out for us. So life is a race. Hardest race on the planet is the Tour de France. This time of year. It is said that to ride three weeks in the Tour de France are 20 stages of that is the equivalent of running several marathons every week for three consecutive weeks. It is punishing and demanding, and that's in the flats. When you get into the Alps, it's something else. On July 20th, 2004, Lance Armstrong was in the race, but he was not leading it. He had won five times previously, And no one in the 101 years of racing had won more than five times. He was going for the sixth time, but as I say, he was not ahead. The person ahead was a fellow by the name of Thomas Volkler. He's a French rider. He had established quite a lead and held it for the last 10 days, making his country proud and giving him some sense of hope that he might actually win the race. But things were about to change. For on the 15th, 16th, and 17th stage of the race, the riders would be going into the Alps. There in the Alps, the peaks are given a scale of four being the easiest to one being the hardest. There are a couple of days where they ride peaks for which there is no number. They simply use a French word that means beyond categories. So punishing and demanding are the Alps to the Tour de France that in 1910, when they first put it into the race, the one who won the race staggered off of his bike, went over to the finish line, and accused the race organizers of being quote unquote assassins. This is brutal. And so, on the 15th stage of the race, with a 22-second lead, Volkler began the day. By the end of the 15th day, he was behind by nine and a half minutes. He never seriously competed the rest of the race. He dropped out of contention. On the second day of the Alps, Armstrong's chief opponents was an Italian rider named Basso and two German riders named Ulrich and Cloden. They were close, but it was Basso who was really ahead. And so, on the 15th day, the second day of the Alps, they timed the riders individually and allowed Basso a two-minute head start over Lance Armstrong. Halfway up the slopes, Armstrong passed him, catapulted himself to the lead of the race, which led to the last day in the Alps. On the last day, it was Cloden who went into a last-minute sprint with only 600 yards left in the day, He burst into a sprint and went ahead by 150 yards. Insurmountable lead with only 600 yards left. But somewhere out of nothing, Armstrong went into a sprint himself and passed Cloden at the finish line by a half a bicycle length. By the end of the 17th stage, The Alps were over. All that remained now were the last three easier stages. Jeff Colvin writes of the story in his book, The Upside of the Downturn, and he he says, in just three transformative days, everything had changed. Three more stages remained, yes, but none would be in the Alps. And for that reason, everyone who knew bicycle racing now understood that the race was officially over. Ulrich even told the media after the 17th stage that he, Cloden, and Basso would spend the rest of the race fighting for second place. Everyone knew that Armstrong would win. His victory had been determined in the steepest mountains, in the most brutal portions and nothing that anyone could do in the flat, easy stages that followed was going to change that. The moral to the story, says Colvin, is that the worst, most difficult conditions bring out differences in people that were not previously apparent. The worst, most difficult conditions bring out differences in people that were not previously apparent, turning leaders into losers, and some losers into winners. If life is a race, it's more a Tour de France than a sprint. I mean it has different stages. It's not one race. It's like 20, back to back to back. And in each one of these stages of life, the terrain can change. Suddenly you can find yourself going from the flat, easy land into the harder terrain through no fault of your own, and it's an entirely different race. And differences suddenly become apparent. There are, for most of our lives, the flat, easy stages of the Christian life And the primary thing required of you in the flat, easy stages is self-discipline and that you avoid distractions. That you not get lost in some other pursuit. That you not let some besetting sin attach itself to you. And so you hear lots of sermons in churches, including this one, about resisting sin and about self-discipline. Because so much of our lives is run in the flat, easy stages. And the chief obstacle is distractions or sins. But then there are the Alps. And some of these seasons are beyond categories. Where the chief obstacle is not sin, but fatigue. Weariness. Suddenly we find ourselves in a season of life that we were not prepared for, and it shakes us to the core. Do you know what I mean? You pray for something, and there is no answer. You say, no, the answer was no. No, there was no answer. There was not even the courtesy of a no. You anoint someone with oil, and they are not healed. What does James say? Well, you have that you have that wrong. What else? You are faithful in your marriage. Your partner is not. They run off and join with someone else. You intercede for your children and they are still to this day on the streets, not inside the church like you imagined you waited for god and no one showed up you preached and no one was converted you were called but you can't find a job or you can't raise the support and suddenly you find yourselves in a stretch that you are not ready for and if you allow me to push the analogy one more time I think sometimes that the church is not doing a great job with people in the Alps. Most of our worship is about praise and celebration, which is wonderful on the flat, easy times. But it doesn't sound good in the Alps. It seems like a mockery to you. It's suspended disbelief. Sermons almost all presume that we have more control over our lives than we actually have. And they challenge us to set away sins and for self-discipline. That works beautifully in the flat easy stages. It is almost nothing to people in the Alps. Testimonies all have happy endings. Conversations in the atrium are brief. Even when we pray at the altar, we are prayed over and then quickly dismissed. We are not built for the Alps. So I think we're losing people in the Alps. I think if you were to interview people in a church that have um, stalled in their spiritual lives, um, I, I think for every one person who sinned away grace, there would be four who just got tired. They ran into something that they could not reconcile with faith, and there was no apparent answer. And they didn't quit. Because they're afraid of the consequences. But they just stopped moving. They're stuck. And sometimes they haven't moved for years. And so when we stand up on days like this to address these people and talk directly to you if you're one of these people, it seems to the rest of us like a downer, you know? Because we are wired For resolution we're wired for answers the moment someone finds out we're in the Alps they come forward with what it takes to get us out we can't take this and then quickly disengage listen to me they quickly disengage if the advice doesn't work not many people are wired to just stay in it I want to spend the rest of the day talking directly to you if you find yourself in that season. I take as my text Hebrews chapter 11. For the first two-thirds of Hebrews 11, we heard of great, illustrious heroes. And in every instance, did you notice The person's name was given first and then their heroic feet. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left. By faith, Moses left Egypt. By faith, Jacob leaned on his staff and worshiped. You know, and the chapter is so full of these heroes that went up against hard things, and then when they had enough faith, it changed. And if we're not careful, the side effect of this is that it leads us to believe that if we just have enough faith, it will change. So we find ourselves in a situation where we are in the Alps and our first response is, I must not have enough faith. And again, the church reinforces this. I mean, to look at us and say, if, if something's not right in your life, then you must be doing something wrong because we are wired for flat, easy stages. We are not wired for the Alps. And instead of running to the lap of the church, which is to be the mother, the sanctuary for people in the Alps, what happens instead is like we are held accountable for not having enough faith. And you say, this is the only faith I know how to have. So I want to take the guilt off of you to start with. I want to suggest that you do not need more faith. And you do not need another kind of faith. There's only one kind. You need the same faith you've always had to do something else for you now that you're in the Alps. Let me say that again. You need the same faith that you had since you were a kid to lift other things and to give you other powers than the ones you always had your whole life. So it's not more faith. It's the same faith doing something else. Let me show you what I mean. Starting in verse 33 of Hebrews chapter 11, if your Bibles are open, you'll see it. You'll notice that the names suddenly stop and the writer goes into 16 Examples of people who had faith. And these 16 examples are like a congregation that Alex talked about last week. They're not individual examples. They had their own stories, but they really stand as one collective voice and say, by faith you hold on. By faith you persevere. And they speak of what faith did for them And they speak of what faith did to them. Let me say that in slow motion. There are 16 examples of faith in the next six verses. And you can divide them into two categories. Drawing a line directly underneath the phrase in verse 35... Some women received back the dead, raised to life. Draw a line. And everything above it are examples of people who triumphed through faith. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They quenched the fury of the flames. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Some women even received back their dead, raised to life. And then everything underneath that line are people who endured something through faith. Others were tortured. They refused to be released. Some were flogged or chained or put in prison. They were stoned or sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They wandered in deserts or in caves or in holes in the ground. The first thing I want to tell you if you find yourself in the Alps is that faith has both parts. you can be in the middle of something you didn't do and it can still be too hard for you. Not because you don't have enough, but because the Alps are part of the race. And nobody in this room can change that for you. If you're in it at all, you have to go through the Alps. And when you get there, you must not beat yourself for lacking something. You only add insult to injury. Instead, you must give yourself the freedom to argue with God without leaving Him. You've been conditioned, b- by the media, to um, to state what you feel and then quickly walk out of the room. You make your statement and then you leave. You accuse the person of doing something and then you you see it on every show. Do you not? It's a one-line zinger and then the person leaves. As if their absence is the vengeance they take out on the person that they're mad at. And what I'm telling you is you must learn the discipline of saying hard things to God, of negotiating with God, arguing with God, fighting with God, even accusing God without leaving God because you stay in the argument. You must not be afraid that your faith is somehow going to fail just because you're angry or because you're confused. (laughs) God is big enough to take it. But you must push beyond the God to whom you are complaining into the real God to whom every one of these things have happened. Let me say that in slow motion. Boy, how to say it. If faith is what it takes to triumph then you would expect that Jesus of Nazareth would never have gone through the Alps. If suffering and agonizing is a result of a lack of faith, then you have, people, an enormous problem with Jesus of Nazareth. For here in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is a profound mystery. Not that God became flesh, of course, but that God became your flesh. And that he subjected himself to conditions like the Alps. And so you must push through the God to whom you are complaining until you find the God to whom every one of these things has also happened. You realize, though, that when you ask God to do things for you, to rescue you, to save you, to give you a better life, all of these things in the Alps, you know, don't you, that you are sometimes asking for things Jesus Christ himself never got. And it ought to sober you. But if you can find that God, you will rest. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Luther reminded us it was Jesus who said, My God, why have you forsaken me? And died without hearing an answer. No resolution. No quick, easy solutions. But if we can get there, church, we are on our way to conquering this part of the race. Let me suggest another part of this for you. You must learn to lose the battles without losing sight of the goal. It seems to me that faith is like a half moon. There's a part of faith where everything is shining and bright. And there's a part of faith that is hidden and dark. And sometimes if you look at the moon, half moon as a child, you are tempted to believe that there is only a half moon you don't know until some adult tells you that there is actually a whole moon but half of it lies hidden in the shadows. Faith is very much this way. Just as there is a faith that is bright and apparent to everyone, the faith of triumph, there is a faith that is quiet and hidden that loses that submits to the powers that be in the shadows. Just as there is a faith that prays for the victory, there is a faith that endures defeat when it knows defeat is inevitable. But it never takes its eyes off the end of the race. Where Christ himself is victor. When we were kids, we loved the story of, um, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three Hebrew children that were thrown into the fiery furnace. You, you, you all know the story. Sometimes I hear that you didn't tell us the story, and I don't know the story. I'll be very, very frast. Nebuchadnezzar is the B.C. version of Isis. He creates an image and requires everyone in the land to change their religion or he'll kill them. But there are three Hebrew children who refuse to bow down before the image. Nebuchadnezzar hears about it, he's enraged. Instead of putting them to death, he decides to be merciful. So he pulls them in and he says to them, I'm giving you a second chance to bow before the image. When you hear the horn blow and you bow before the image, then all will be well. But if you refuse to bow, I will throw you into the blazing furnace. And then this is what he says, And then what God will rescue you from my hand? And the three children say, Sir, we worship the Lord our God and he will rescue us from your hand. He is the one who is able to save us from the fiery furnace. And then, they say, but if he does not, we still will not bow down. I caught that again. Two weeks ago, as I was reading through Daniel, if he does not. If he does not. And I made a note to myself in the side margins of the Bible that said, What do you do if he does not? You who are addicted to winning, what do you do if he does not? You who always have answers, what do you do if he does not? You who imagine that God is always logical, rational, safe within the confines of your theology, what do you do if He does not? You have to separate faith from the outcomes of faith and learn to do what is right even when there is no apparent benefit. We must separate faith from the outcomes of faith and cling only to the one who has promised. And then continue to do what is right even when there is no apparent benefit. For it will seem to you in the Alps that there is no apparent benefit, that you are not winning and that you do not have the reserves. But still... You must trust Him. Last, I, I want to tell you in this journey that you must not worry about losing your faith. It's not like you can misplace it or something. You must not worry about possessing faith you must know in this season that your faith is possessing you there are times when you can hold on to faith and it will take you places uh, where you never could go you will conquer kingdoms and rout armies but then there are times when you can do nothing and your faith is simply holding you And if the Bible is anything, church, it is a litany of things that God is doing for you. It is not a list of things that you have to do for God. What kind of a God is He if He needs you to do these things? It is better for you just to rest in the sovereignty of an Almighty God. Bear your soul make your accusations but be honest about them talk to yourself just don't listen to yourself allow yourself to rant but know at the end of the day god has you the psalmist said if i go to the highest heavens You are there. Literally in Hebrews, it's thou. (laughs) If I go to the highest heavens, thou. If I make my bed in hell, thou. If I go to the wings of the dawn, even there, thou. I can't get away from you is what the psalmist says. Isaiah said, fear not, for I have redeemed you. (laughs) You're not losing your faith. You've not fallen off the course. God hasn't stopped listening to you. He's not angry with you. He has already redeemed you. He said, I know you by name and you are mine. There are seasons when you have to know that and you have to know nothing else. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when you are faithless, He is faithful because he cannot deny his own. It's not in his nature. It's in your nature. But it isn't in his nature. He would have to be a different kind of God to do to you what you're doing to him. And Jonah fled from the word of the Lord. And he ran to Tarshish. And God sent a giant whale. Swallowed him whole. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah cried out to the Lord. Here's the last part. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You can't run. He will find you. Jesus said to Peter on the shores of Galilee after the third denial, take some of the fish that you caught and bring them over here and put them with mine. You'd expect him to say, you keep them separate. What he said was, I know, Take what you got and put it with mine.